0: Welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to GDPR and all things privacy. This week's episode is Everything a DPO Needs to Know About Cybersecurity, Part 2. Regular listeners will already have heard Part 1. For those that missed it, it's Episode 7, and it looked primarily at the soft side of cybersecurity, i.e. educating people on how to minimize cyber risks. In this Part 2, We're going to be looking more at the non-people side of things, physical security, network design, that kind of thing. Just to remind you that GDPR Now is brought to you by This Is DPO, which you can find at thisisdpo.co.uk, and your host is me, Mark Sherwood-Edwards. In the studio today, and also the guest for part one, so coming back for part two, is Andy Larkham of ADR Consulting. Welcome back, Andy.
1: Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me back. That's uh, very generous of you.
0: No, not at all. Um, we well. For those that missed part one, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself and your business? How you got into it? What, what you do? That kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Sure. Okay. So I started out life uh, working in building websites and database systems, and uh, I yeah we we always built stuff securely. Um, it was something that just was built into our, our DNA, I guess, as we, as we did our work. And, uh, and then I, I took some time out of the business to help a friend. Uh, he was building a company around cybersecurity. And as I got involved there, what I discovered was that, um, you know, whilst we were doing things securely, that wasn't actually common practice, particularly in the industry that I would have been working in. So uh, having spent some time there, you know, I, I, I left that business, came back to working in ADL, And uh, and decided to steer the business down that route of helping people to understand what cybersecurity is all about and the things that they should be doing and considering to secure themselves and their businesses. So that's what we do now. We help businesses to understand security. Uh, We help businesses to protect their data. Uh, We help businesses to achieve things like ISO twenty seven thousand and one, which is widely considered the gold standard in information security. And uh, yeah, essentially, we help people training, education, and, uh, and practical consultancy to protect themselves.
0: Okay, that's very helpful. And for those who are interested, in particularly in that reference, of 20, the ISO 27001 uh, standard, there's a discussion about that in, in, in Episode 7. And Andrew's making the point that actually, if you go about it the right way, it's easier and cheaper to do than people think it is, provided you start at the right place and aim in the right direction. Um, but in this session, we'll be talking about the the, uh, <clears throat> the the not the soft side, the harder side. So we'll be looking, talking about physical, technical access controls, network design, default deny, least privilege, separation of duties, and and so on. So, Andy, why don't you kick us off on uh, physical and technical access controls? What, if you are a cyber security specialist as you are, what kind of things do you Think about, talk to clients about?
1: Yeah, okay. So, with physical control, I, I, it's kind of something that you'd think would be natural and obvious to most people. You know, we, we all lock our front doors when we leave the house for the day, um, but we tend not to perhaps apply physical controls in the same way when we get to work. So, um, in an office scenario, you can imagine things like a reception or, you know, board. okay, let's start at perimeter. You know, what kind of perimeter security does the does the business have? Do you have you know a, a fence around the outside? You know, do, do you have gates uh, or or barrier system to to you know, stop the wrong kind of people coming into the the, the property in the first instance? Once they pass that, you know, what 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 stops them from actually getting into the building? Um, you know, classics would be things like. Uh, uh, People stepping outside for a cigarette uh, who will use the fire escape rather than front door because you know, we we don't want guests to the building seeing that so they open the fire escape they leave it ajar and you know any any stranger walking up to the fire escape perhaps they'll help them open the door uh, and just let them into the building. Um, uh, again, back to the front doors. Uh, is there someone stopping me from just walking straight into the building? Even a receptionist. You know, if I walk confidently enough into reception and, and straight past the reception desk would they stop or challenge me is there then some kind of card system or key system preventing me from getting past reception so you know some buildings you'll go into they've got uh, uh like slidey gate things some i have to fob my way into the lift to get into into the building or, or some kind of you know physical control that stops me from getting any further so so when we think physical it, it let's say it sounds kind of obvious but it, it, it's not the kind of thing that every business is actually doing. And the main aim of physical control is just how do we stop people from getting to where data processing is happening in the first place?
0: Okay. And if you, as part of your engagement with a client, would you kind of test some of those things? Would you try to tailgate someone, try to get in the. Um... You know the fire exit if it was left open. Try to bluff your way past the reception. Is, is that what people do just to make sure the things working properly?
1: Yeah, I mean, okay. So as a as a professional <laughs> and, and a company who, who helps with this kind of thing, we'd only ever do that if we were invited. Um, you know, a, any company that tries to get into your building and then flags it back to you and says, "Oh, we found this weakness. You should look at it. We can help you." Um, yeah, that that's not okay. You you agree that kind of stuff first. It's a bit like someone trying to hack your company um, and then turning around and saying, "Hey, we found these vulnerabilities. Uh, would you like us to help protect you?" Yeah, you know, that that always starts with you going and asking. You know, you go you the client goes and invites a company like mine to come and test your security rather than uh, me testing it and pointing out you've got weaknesses. But yeah, where we're invited to do that, we would turn up to a company on an agreed date. Um, and we would always ask for some kind of uh, uh, email or, or letter from you the client saying that we're supposed to be there and trial in it in case somebody challenges us but then yes absolutely we test out you know, where can i get to what can i do how can i access the building um, once i'm in the building what do i have access to where can i get to um what could i take what could i steal you know it, it goes anywhere from just a physical check of can i walk into your building to um then you know trying some social engineering so could we phone your company and get information out of you that we shouldn't have access to could we find information about the company or people who work there through social media or um through uh, again through through phoning and asking who we should be speaking to about stuff again what what information can i get my hands on that probably i'm not supposed to have access to
0: And is this this typically designed in a layered way? So you'd have the kind of external perimeter and then you'd have kind of perimeters within the external perimeter. I mean, you talked about you can't get into the lift, for example, or you can't access certain areas. Is that how it's typically thought of? It's like circles within circles.
1: Yeah, I love the fact you used the the word layered there. Whenever you talk about security, you should always think about it in terms of layers. All right. So if we make this personal to home, for example, um, you, you might have you, you might live in a gated community. Well, that's layer one. Right. I've got to get past your, your, your community gates before I can get to your property. Uh, and then once I'm past that, perhaps you've got gates to your property. Well, now I've got to get through those. And, and once I'm through those, then I've got to get past your floodlights and your CCTV system before I can access your front door. And once I'm through your front door, I've got to disable your, 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 your alarm system. Um, and once I'm in to your home, past your alarm system, then I've got to find your safe. Uh, once I get to your safe, I've got to get through that door. You know, so the the same kind of thing is true when we come to physical security of a building or a premises. Um every every layer that you add is another layer that I've got to get past before I can access your your data.
0: Okay, understood. And moving now on to kind of network design. So what, what kind of consideration? What kind of alternatives are there in putting together a network? Let's say you're a medium-sized company or a large company, or, or whichever size company, and how how you do the same kind of layering issues come up at the at the topology side of 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 the network? Just when working out the basic design for it.
1: Yeah, kind of. So uh, again, wh- when you think um, networks, you kind of need to think logically about well. Who does what on our network, and what should they be doing? So, for example, you know, if I walk into a building that has Wi-Fi that I'm allowed to connect to, um, you know, a sensible conversation would be, well, that once I'm on that Wi-Fi, what can I do? And if I'm a guest into the building and I'm connecting to the Wi-Fi, my assumption would be that the only thing I can do is access the internet, and that actually probably my connection to your Wi-Fi to the internet should be isolated from anybody else on that Wi-Fi network. I certainly shouldn't be able to access your core company network because that should be an entirely separate network altogether. And it's, it's actually quite a nice case study. If you go and do a bit of research on target and the target data breach happened, I think back in 2014, uh, essentially the, the, the problem there was that they, they'd, uh, the the fraudsters had spearfished the company that looked after their HVAC systems. Um, And so this HVAC employee had some malicious software installed on his laptop. He didn't know that. But the next time he went into Target and plugged his laptop into their HVAC system to do maintenance work, the HVAC systems were all connected to the same core network as everything else in in the company. So once that laptop was plugged in, plugged into the HVAC system, the fraudsters had access to every single part of the company data, every single network. And you can see, kind of straight away, well, that that's a bit of a, a flaw, frankly. Um, you know, the HVAC se- system should surely be on a segregated network and not have access to things like credit card data. Similarly, you know, if you've got uh, perhaps an HR department, again. De- I appreciate this largely depends on the size of the company. But if you've got a whole separate uh, HR uh, entity within your company, well, perhaps all the HR work should happen on a segregated section of the network to where the standard processing like email marketing stuff happens, for example.
0: Okay. And just so everyone's clear, we're talking about Target, the breach with Target US, not right. Target, Target Group based out of Cardiff in Wales totally separate <laughs> correct <laughs> uh, okay those kind of those kind of layering separations are, I, I understand and would you but then also uh, maybe split up separate data and have that in different parts even if it's about the same person the same thing would you you know keep some data I don't know you might have I don't know for every person 20 pieces of data say uh, of which 18 are fairly ordinary and two are pretty significant bits of data would you would it be a sensible uh, measure to separate those the 18 from the two somehow so someone who finds uh, breaks into the 18 can't break in so does he break in and get hold of the two and, and vice versa
1: yeah i mean look, logistics apply here and we, we've got to be smart about how how we do this kind of stuff and and for for purists listen to this that you'll appreciate there's a there's an overlap here between the network topology which is where we're talking and, and um you know kind of permissions based access so it might be for example that you've got a database system that holds all of that sensitive data but 18 of the fields are accessible by everyone and those sensitive to are not they're only accessible to certain users within the within the system um, but certainly at, at a higher level we can look at things like vlans to segregate up your date your your network into chunks so that R and D, for example, perhaps live on a separate VLAN to to HR, who'd sit on a separate VLAN to finance, who'd sit on a separate VLAN to others, and then between each of these networks, you can then introduce firewalls, which can add more protection to your different networks. So you know we we know, for example, within um, within the R and D section, they're running a wiki. Uh, which is running on a web server within that department, but we don't want that web server accessible to the internet or even to the rest of the business. So we can block port eighty from being open to anyone other than those users within that VLAN. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does make sense. Um, and what other kind of what other kind of considerations, or what would you put into a network design, and what other kind of network designs do people typically do you typically come across? Because I presume there isn't just one flavour. There must be quite a few different flavours of network design.
1: Oh, yes, of course. And again, um, different designs will apply and, and make sense in different settings. But I, I suppose the, the rule of thumb is um, you always want to consider where the boundaries of networks should exist. Okay, so you, you might choose, for example, to divide your network up into each of the uh, departments, logical departments that your your company operates. That might be impractical, and it might be too much maintenance. And again, you might have users from departments who, who need access to systems in, in other departments. And and you know, what we don't want to do is create a maintenance nightmare. But what we do want to do is think sensibly about who should be able to access what information and whether we can ring-fence that. And again, coming back to layers, the more layers of security we apply, the, the safer we become. But we, we are, of course, as I say, introducing a management overhead where any, anywhere you introduce a firewall, for example, is brilliant because it adds a layer of security, but it also adds a layer of maintenance because somebody needs to be on top of those firewalls and frequently checking in to make sure that new ones haven't been added and that old ones have been removed. Um, otherwise, what we end up with is actually less security because no one's paying attention to the firewall rules.
0: Yeah, okay. It's a bit like um, uh, the fact you have to change your password every 30 days, 90 days, whether that's resulted in increased security or decreased security, you have to keep writing them down so you can remember them, so, But that kind of issue.
1: Yeah. You know, so if I open up a port in our firewall because uh, we, we, we run a web server and then at some point in time we decide we're not using that web server anymore, we're going to repurpose it and instead use it as a mail server. Well, if I don't go back and firstly disable that service, the web service running on that web server as was, and secondly, don't go back and remove the firewall rule that gave access to port 80 and 443 on that server, over time, the web server is going to age because no one's looking at it or patching and maintaining it. And the fact that the firewall rules still open means that that can be abused now from the outside. So we we have to get good at going back and checking network firewall rules and, and let's say reviewing them to make sure they're still current and accurate. And we need to obviously make sure if we're going to repurpose servers, we're smart about that and uh, and disable any old services or services we don't need anymore.
0: And Okay, and, and that raises a kind of interesting point about kind of corporate memory, memories and things. So let's say that you've got an IT department is doing all those things, but there's a high turnover of staff. And so the person who would have done it is, has left. Um, I guess you can, you can keep a log of everything that everyone should be doing and timed and see if it was done. Or you, there could be some systemic, uh, you know, once every 12 months where you reassess everything, we revisit and check. What, what, what's, what do people normally do and, and what's the recommended route?
1: Yeah, so, okay, at the risk of going on about 27,001, it's the, one of the things that uh, people hate and love about 27,001 is, is the uh, forced review and logging <laughs> that happens. You know, it generates a lot of work for people, but the main thing that it's doing is actually making sure that the stuff that was supposed to happen actually gets done. Right. So um, things like firewall rules, you should be reviewing frequently as a matter of course. And I would suggest quarterly is a sensible kind of time frame unless you have a particularly high turnover of firewall rules for some reason. Most companies don't. Um, You know, you would open up a new port in the firewall because you're introducing a new system. And that doesn't tend to happen quarterly. That tends to happen more like annually to every few years. So reviewing them more frequently, actually, you're just creating more work for yourself. But, but you can get smart about this kind of stuff. Like you know, if you can export your firewalls and then um, essentially use something like Git, for example, where you can do a comparison on, well, this is the firewall rules we're expecting. What do they look like now and have they changed? If they haven't changed. Great. Move on uh, and just log the fact that you checked it. If they have changed, we want to know what and why.
0: Okay, and that's a that's a kind of bit of software that allows you to export and compare firewall, firewall rules, is it?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so most firewalls will allow you to export the rules to um, some kind of, I, I don't know, format file where you, you can re-import them later. Um, but if you've got that as a, a particularly in a text format and you can use uh, systems for doing comparison on this text file versus that text file, um, that would show you pretty quickly what's changed.
0: And if you're if you're a DPO who, who you know, and there is a regular meeting of it, it might be part of the data protection committee meeting or maybe part of the security meeting. and You're sitting on it as a DPO, and you're looking for these kind of documents. What do you expect? What would you expect to see? Would you expect to see kind of regular reports on the status of you know, each of these these things? Same report coming around quarterly that notifying of any changes. Is that, is that what you'd expect to see? What what would be kind of good governance at the security level that the DPO can then look at and say, actually, that looks like quite good governance.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so here we're really talking about, you know, have we got suitable technical controls for you know, managing and protecting the data that we're holding? Um, and you know, a, a good check here would be to say, well, yes, somebody has checked the firewall rules. They are as we'd expect them to be. And that's been signed off by suitable person within the business and debate that that happened and i'd want to see that happening like i say probably at least quarterly um potentially more frequently than that but as i say what we we've got to balance you know what's sensible with what's helpful and you know if, if we say well i want to see a daily check off that uh, yeah, no, the firewall rules haven't changed well, we're getting a bit ridiculous now so you know let, let, let's be sensible about what's what's right for the business that you're working in um, and that will be based on a number of factors like how frequently things are changing. But is, is
0: that the only one or, or, or things that you'd be sit, sitting there looking at? Is this good governance, or not good governance? Um, not so much the frequency, but what what kind of line items, far, firewall uh, checks? What other line items would you expect to see? Or was, was that the sum of it?
1: Yeah, OK. So if, if we're still talking about networks, Um, then yes firewall rules and any uh, new networks that have been introduced Uh, so you know for example we're running a number of vlans why have we got this new vlan what what's it serving and and you know who's it who's it for and if we're talking about wider than that in terms of governance then obviously introduction of new systems we've got to know about that (laughs) what's going on in those systems what's going into it how's it being protected how's it being managed who's responsible for it and and it's it's actually something that's come to a head for me recently uh, with with a client is a lack of responsibility for data assets. You know, if if, if nobody's actually responsible other than the company, then nobody's actually looking at it. Yeah, you know, we we've got to assign responsibility for data assets to individuals, uh, and even if they choose to delegate that to a team or to other individuals within the business, at least we know where the buck stops and who ultimately. Is responsible for that data asset and should be checking up on its security.
0: Okay, and therefore, would you, does that mean that you'd expect to see for any security organization of this, well, IT security, let's say cybersecurity organization, a list of all the roles and, you know, who's, who, where the backstops, who's, who's been delegated, that kind of thing, and each, each, and then, and then a frequency of sign off or attestation or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's that kind of procedure.
1: Yeah, so so I suppose in terms of uh, again, 27,001, we would call this roles and responsibilities. You know, who within the company is responsible for what, and when it comes to data, you know, it's it's really easy. For example, for a company to go, well, it's data. That's the DPO's responsibility. Like, well, yeah, kind of. Ultimately, you could argue the buck stops with the DPO. But before it gets to the DPO, you know, if you've got HR data, well, probably the head of HR should be responsible for making sure that the HR system uh, has the right data in it. And the HR person should probably be asking the right questions about, well, who can access this system? And the HR person should probably be uh, doing some kind of due diligence and maybe getting some help from the IT people and or the data protection person when when selecting or procuring a new HR system. So you know, we, c- we can't just say, well, the buck stops with the DPO. Well, before it stops with the DPO, you know, Who's responsible? So uh, take a, an, an IP and and let's go with the R and D department again. We've got this new IP um, which is really valuable to us as a business. Well, there's no there's no personal data in that IP, so probably the DPO isn't really responsible for that. Maybe who is responsible for that? Well, the R and D people. Yeah, but who within R and D is responsible? Uh, R&D. No, that's too vague. Because if, if we're just saying R&D, really what we're saying is no one. No one's looking after that. No one's checking up on it. No one's making sure it's secure. No one's reviewing the permissions. Uh, and and you, can, you see it all the time when it comes to, you know, who's got access to this folder? Well, this team of people. But well, there's 10 people in this team. Yes. So why are there 14 permissions on this folder? Oh, because four people have left the team. When? two years ago okay we probably should have checked up on that
0: okay that well that brings us on to kind of uh, default denial and, and, and lease privilege um, and I would have thought is this and I'd take a stab and maybe I'd say this is probably the one of the most common failings in in businesses that they're not tightly managing their who has access to what
1: yeah I, I'd say you're probably right there I mean look, it's it's so much easier. To just leave everything wide open, and then uh, occasionally we might close something off. Um, but you can see, hopefully, quite obviously, particularly night of all the things we've been talking about so far, just how dangerous that can be. You know, if if I leave everything open, if I leave the front door open, uh, and then maybe I'll close off one particular bit of my home, um, uh, but but the front door's open, right? Well. Do, 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 I, do I really mean to leave the front door open? Did I really mean anybody can walk into my home? No, that's not what I meant. What, what I meant was this particular bit, I want to lock down. Yeah, but that's not what you did. What you did was left the front door open. Right? So, so we got to get a bit better at locking everything by default and then opening up permissions when we need it. The problem with that is it's hard and it's annoying. Right, so you know, I'm going to create a team. Okay, cool. Who's in the team? Well, these nine people. Okay, who of these other nine people then should have access to what? Well, three of them need access to that folder. Four of them need access to this folder. Three of them need access, and and so on and so forth. Well, I got to go through and set up all those permissions, and that's a lot of work. It would just be easier if I just let all ten of us have access to their top level folder and everything within it. That's easier, right? But in that moment, what I've done is potentially expose sensitive data to members of the team who shouldn't have access to it because I was a bit lazy. And honestly, I might get away with that. It might be fine. But in the moment, it's not fine. I really wish I'd bothered.
0: Yeah, I think there was a uh, uh, Portuguese um, a fine in Portugal for regional hospital where they uh, they the accesses, they were... Uh, I think it was 200 people in the hospital that had doctor-level access to the files, but there are only about, I don't know, 30 or 40 doctors working in the hospital at that time. So That's right. And probably, apart from – and is there two, are there two kind of common issues. One is the one that we talked about, the slightly lazy setting up of, of access profiles. And the other one you kind of mentioned earlier is actually the whole leaving lever process and closing down the access accesses when people leave because I suspect – Back to my experience, that's pretty weak in a lot of companies as well.
1: Yes, uh, I mean, look, um, historic permissions are, are a major problem in, in just about every business. And actually, I, I, I was going to say it's easily fixed. That's not entirely true. Um, it's easily made visible, perhaps, uh, by introducing a, a lever process and also a change of role process right so so let's go with change a role first um you know i move from from this position to that position well what really should happen is that all of my permissions are cleared down like everything and then those permissions are rebuilt for my new role for my new position right uh, and if we do that then basically, I, it removes any potential for me having access to stuff that I shouldn't have access to because we know that all of my permissions now pertain to the role that I'm currently in, rather than any historic role. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we talk about accumulation of rights. So, you know, I I'm now the CEO, but I started out life as a tea boy, and uh, you know, I went through from t boy to being employee or you know base level employee, and from base level employee, I went into middle management, and then middle management to senior management. And I did that in a number of different departments before then being elevated to you know, a director level uh, and then ultimately on to being the CEO. And now as CEO, I have access to everything down through the business because nobody, nobody bothered to clear up behind me. Um, and that makes me a massive vulnerability and a massive uh, risk to the business because I can do anything I like. I can access the finance data, the HR data, the R&D data, um, you know, everything, uh, because nobody cleaned up.
0: Yeah, it's a double risk, isn't it? It's a double risk because the person's got more access than that person should have. And if that person's uh, access gets hacked, then the hacker has access to everything. That, exactly that, yes. So that, and, that and, how, and how many companies do this? I mean, in your experience, how many companies do this change of role, uh, clear it right down to zero, build it back up again?
1: <laughs> Not many, because it's work, right? And, and it's hard work. It's annoying um, to, to have to do it. But the uptick in security is you know, progressively significant. And as you know, like I say, we, we take one person changing from one role to another. Well, we get a, a bit of an uptick, but you get a high turnover particularly where there's companies with high turnover of staff or where people move roles frequently um you know the 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 security uptick by clearing down and rebuilding it is substantial and and really is worth considering so look with with all things security you should be looking at the risk right and and risk once we understand risk we can be much more pragmatic about what we should be doing. And if you decide that actually, do you know what? Within our business, people hardly ever change roles. And um and if they do, probably it doesn't mean much in terms of the difference of what they should have access to. Then introducing this as a job probably isn't worth doing because well somebody's gonna spend, you know, half a day clearing down the old permissions and rebuilding them pretty much the same as they were in the first instance. That's not worth doing. But if you're in a company where actually you know, the risk introduced by not having that procedure in place could leave you un- unacceptably exposed, then it's absolutely something you should be doing. And then map it onto, again, the lever process of just making sure, for goodness sake, this person's leaving the company, will disable their their account and make sure you've gone through and removed permissions. Please, why wouldn't you do that?
0: Well, yeah, exactly. But, pe- but companies don't because in all our experience, well, we just, you know, or... People aren't doing it as often and as rigorously as they should. Probably a better way
1: of putting it. Absolutely. And look, we've got to be honest. Sometimes that's a failure of communication, not a deliberate thing. Um, but other times it is, it's is—it's just lazy um, and or we have—we don't have enough resource to do it, um, both of which the company should be viewing as as a risk that they should be addressing.
0: Okay, understood. Um, on my list, then another, another element on the, this kind of security is separation of duties. So, so what's that? How does that work?
1: Yeah, OK. Well, I, I always find most people connect easily when you start talking about launching a missile. Right. You know, if we're going to launch a missile, I'd really rather have at least two people involved in making that decision, uh, preferably more because that missile is going to hurt people. <laughs> so, so if we're going to launch it, let's make sure that at least two people thought that was a good idea, right? So uh, division of duties, the idea here is that we should be dividing up who can do what within a business. So let's let's take them. We've got a mission critical system. Okay, cool. Um, we want to take that mission critical system offline. Do we really? Uh, are we sure that's a good idea? And if we're actually going to do that, Probably more than one pe- person should be involved in making that decision, and probably one person shouldn't be able to delete everything. Right? So you, you see this really clearly when we look at uh, things like PCI DSS and and uh, card vault systems. You know, you shouldn't have one person so, who so can. For those
0: that don't, don't know, this is. Why don't you explain it? It's the card. It's a card. Credit card verification standard
1: PCI DSS. It, yes, a payment card data right if if we're going to handle payment card data and you're going to build a vault system to hold that payment card data you don't really want one person with access to everything right you 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 really need to have at least two people who are going to be responsible for that data and 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 if if we need access to it both of them need to agree that that's a good idea and the reason for that is it's actually if if I'm going to go rogue within a business, and I'm going to do something malicious within that business, so think inside a threat, okay, um, then it's much harder for me to carry out that malicious act if I need to get somebody else involved to do it, right? So So division of duties means that I have to now find somebody else within the business to collude with me to do something in order to damage that business. So, a really good example of this recent times would be the Morrison's data breach, where there was an internal employee. So, an employee of Morrison's within the finance department who downloaded the entire payroll data and then published that online. Well, that employee should not have been able to download that data. There should have been some kind of division there that meant that whilst he could access some of it, for example, he couldn't access all of it, or perhaps we put in some kind of limitation to say, well, look, you can access up to N records at a time. And then there's perhaps a timeout that says you're going to have to wait a period of time before you can export the next chunk. Yeah. And now I've separated that particular employee's ability to bash their way through something. So we, we do this with passwords all the time, right? We We, we call it throttling when it comes to password attempts, you can try three times and then I'm going to lock your account for five minutes. We could look at that as, to a point, separation, where it's like, well, you can try this, but after a time we're going to say no. (laughs) Separation of duties is a bit like that, except we're saying, you're going to need to find somebody else to agree that that's a good idea before we're going to let you do it. And is that commonly
0: used in companies at the moment as as an approach?
1: Yeah, again, it kind of depends at what level and what kind of size companies we're talking about. Certainly in large companies, yes, separation of duties is a very real thing. You know, if we look into the military, absolutely, that's a real thing. Um, if we look into small businesses, no, not really, particularly things like, for example, if you've got an owner-managed business, it's probably the owner who's actually authorizing payments or you know uh, agreeing to the payroll and stuff like that. In bigger companies, we see division of duties between departments. So, you know, your, your, your finance department is responsible for making payments. But again, even there, you probably should have a sign-off process for payments over a certain amount.
0: Okay, I understand that. And what about something like um, one of the kind of topics you got listed is working in key areas. Um, what, what do you mean by that as an element
1: of security? Okay, so this this comes really into play actually when we start talking about personal data, right? So, so particularly for the DPOs, this this one's quite interesting. Okay, let let's imagine you've got a part of your business uh, that that looks at um, things like criminal records, right? So their their job is to review um, DBA checks, right? the area that they're working in we should probably consider as being a higher risk area to the company than another area of the business where they never look at personal data at all right they, they only ever um, they, they only have access to the system that tells them what what what's uh, okay a warehouse let's go with a warehouse because that's that's perhaps helpful you know, you've got warehouse operatives whose job it is to go around and pick stuff off shelves. They shouldn't be looking at HR data. And where the HR data is, we probably don't want the warehouse operatives just walking through that area and picking up pieces of paper off desks. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Okay, so when we talk about secure areas, we need to be thinking about what data processing is happening within which offices or departments within the company. And if we've got particularly sensitive data processing happening in one particular department, we should absolutely be looking at, coming right back to the beginning, the physical access controls of who can be in that room in the first place. Um, so things like you know, making sure that the doors close automatically and making sure that they have uh, you know, keypads or key fob access to those, to those offices so that it, not just anyone within the business can walk, wander in.
0: No, okay. Now, I know that you will say that none of this works without adequate, without adequate training of staff.
1: <laughs> Always true.
0: Okay. Um, I do you want to talk a bit about training now? We covered it last time, but you can say a few more words about it if you think that's, that's helpful to, to listeners.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for those who didn't hear, or those who did, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back over a bit of old ground. But yeah, I, I'll use this phrase a lot. If we understand the why, we'll endure the how. Right, and and let let's just go with that last example of we've got an area within the business where some pretty sensitive processing's happening, so the doors are locked, um, and you know they've got key fob access or or keypad access to get into those offices, uh, and the doors are shut, except that they're not shut because the staff who work in there find it annoying that they have to keep using their fob or, or typing in the keypad code each time they get back to the office. So what they actually do is they just prop the door open with a fire extinguisher. Well, clearly they haven't understood why. They don't understand why we've shut those doors and why the doors should be locked and why they shouldn't let anybody into the office. And that's why they've propped the door open. If they did understand it, they'd get on board with the how, which is you must have a key fob you must use the keypad code, you must shut the door behind you, you must not allow somebody to tailgate you unless you know that person also walks works within this department. But if we take it a step further, if those access controls are actually digital, so let's go with FOB access, then perhaps those key fobs are actually being logged as well because we want to know not just that the person is allowed into that area but also who that person is that's accessing that area and when they're coming and going, because that could prove really important if there was a data uh, data breach in the future. So if all of a sudden a whole bunch of sensitive data walked out of that department on a particular day at a particular time, we'd like to know who was coming and going on that day and time. And again, we're back to the, why are we doing this? If your staff don't understand why you're doing something security-wise, they will not engage or get on board with the how, and they will find a way to bypass it, making your security redundant and and defeating the purpose. No, Okay. Yeah, that's clear. Um,
0: Well, that's been really, really helpful, Andy. I think that brings us to time. But thanks very much for that. I think that kind of part one and part two – is a kind of very useful thing for DPOs and anyone's interested in this area because you get it covers both sides of physical security. Um, if people want to get hold of you, Andy, how, how do they do that?
1: Yeah, great. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, then you know, please visit our website in the first instance. That's at uh, ADL Consulting, all one word, so Alpha Delta Lima Consulting co uk, um, and from there, you know, there, there's a get in touch. Uh, or you can pick up the phone and give us a call. Um it, we'd love to hear from you. Look, we you know, why do we do what we do? Well, we want to help businesses get their heads around this stuff and we want to help them protect themselves uh, and not become the victim of fraud and not become uh, the victim of a fine from the ICO either. So, you know, please let us help you with this stuff. Please get in touch. If you've got even if you just got some questions, um you know, very happy to help you with those and answer those.
0: And do you have, if I remember correctly, you were launching some online training that's what we spoke about last time. Did that? Have you had time to put that together yet?
1: Yeah, so some of that's up and running. Um, and again, if we can add some uh, links to the meeting notes here, that would be really great. Um, and uh, yeah, if you if you want to sign up and use that, the introduction's free, and after that, the you know, price per user. Um, or if you want to you know, sign your company up for large numbers of staff, get in touch with us again, and we can uh, arrange a deal on that.
0: Okay, so I'll put that information uh, in the show notes, together with uh, contact de- details for Andy. So that brings us to uh, this end. The end of this episode of GDPR Now. forthcoming planned episodes include the Richard Lloyd and Google litigation, Privtech, CCPA, the Californian sort of version of GDPR, extraterritoriality and the GDPR, artificial intelligence and privacy, and lots of other good stuff. Um, if you've got any other issues that you'd like to see addressed or questions answered, please send them to info at thisisdpo.co.uk. Equally, if you'd like to peer the programme, uh, please let us know. Contact details and other relevant information are available in the show notes. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everyone.